Hello, church family. Thank you for joining us for another message from Res Life Holland. We hope this sermon encourages you in your walk with Jesus and empowers you to live the life God has for you. Now sit back and enjoy today's message. Today, I'm going to do something a little different. I was talking to someone a while back, and they, they said, you know, they, they said, sometimes some people have these kinds of sermons where they start in the same place and then they stay there. I said, I, I don't hear those very often. I said, you know, that's true, because I usually do what would be called a topical sermon, where I talk about a particular topic, and I'll pull what the Scripture says about it from a lot of different places. Today, we're going to spend most of our time in Luke chapter 15 in the parable of um, the prodigal son, and we're going to do what for us here is a little bit different. We'll do a little bit more of an expository sermon, which is we're going to read that story, and we're going to talk about that but I couldn't resist. I'll still throw in some verses from other places when they applied. Um, you know the story. Most of us know the story of the prodigal son. This, this is a, a young man who wants his inheritance immediately. He demands it from his father. He then takes off. He squanders it in a faraway land. Um, he returns back thinking, maybe I could just work as an employee for my dad because out there it's just a mess and it's too hard. He gets back. His brother is jealous of him, but his father welcomes him back with open arms. And uh, what I want to talk about and I want to pay attention to as we look through this story, and there's so many lessons, so many lessons that we could be learning. And the most common one is about the heart of God and how God is um, always there with open arms, even after we have made mistakes. And that is an excellent application of this, but that's not where I plan to spend most of our energy. What I want to talk about is what we can learn about, uh, about our, our maturity and the way that we react to life and the way that we view life. And I want to look at the way that the three characters in that story viewed life basically what their maturity level was and how that applied and how that played out and how we can learn from it. So the first person we see, stage one, I'm going to say, is the prodigal son. Let's read in, in Luke 15, 11 through 19. It says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So I want to look at his perspective on life. And the first thing he says is, Give me what's mine. Give me what's mine. His focus is on himself. It's selfish. At that level, 
We see some, of, some Christians are at that level. You can tell when they pray because what do they pray? Gimme, 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 gimme. When, when I was a little kid, we, uh, we had little cassette tapes that we would listen to that were little Bible stories and, and, and different things. And there was this one, and when I hear that, I think of it. There was this little child story, and they had a gimme monster. And it was the, and he would, he would go around, gimme, gimme, I, I, me, me, mine, gimme, gimme, I, I. And there was like this whole music to it. And whenever I hear that, think of that, I just, I can't get that thought out of my mind. And this little story would talk about how to, to beat the gimme monster. But the give me monster, the, the, the focus is on himself. He doesn't care about other people. You ever notice babies don't show empathy? A baby has never been like, you know, it's 2 a.m., I'm tired and hungry, you know, I'm hungry, my diaper needs changing, but you're probably really tired. I just won't bother saying anything. No, they, they don't have any empathy. They only see themselves. At, at this level, they ask for, he, he, he goes to his father. Now, think about this. He goes to his father. He says, all that stuff you have, I get that when you're dead. And I'm sick of waiting for you to be dead. Just give it to me now. I mean, literally what he's telling his dad is, I would prefer it if you're dead. But as long as you're not, let's pretend you are. Just give me everything that I would get when you die. That's it. That's the, the, the concept where kids, teenagers, want everything right away. I need to have what everybody else has. You know, delayed gratification isn't always learned. As In fact, rarely is it. As adults, we can think of times when we are exhibiting that same thing. Delay, delay gratification? Just look at the statistics. The statistics tell us that the average American has nearly $10,000 in credit card debt. That's the average. So... If you don't have $10,000 in credit card debt, someone else has got even more than that. Look at that. What does that come from? That I want it now, not later. And we need to understand part of what gives us the ability to hold out and wait and delay gratification is understanding the value of it. I got a business degree from college. And when I went to 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 college, I was really, really excited for business classes. And I remember the first finance class in my business degree that I took. And I grew up, my dad was constantly talking to me about different things and, and investments, and, and I would get to go with him as, as he would go fishing with different people that were, were, were businessmen and investors, and he would talk about things. And I, I think I, I know now, I knew more than the average kid about investment, but I was so excited. I'm like, now I'm going to be in college, and I am going to learn things that, that I'm going to come back, and I'm going to tell my dad, you know, I'm going to be the one teaching him, because I'm going to have college-level finance. We spent half the class learning to balance a checkbook and how a credit card works. Now, what shocked me more than that this was college level, was that all, like the majority of the rest of these college students were in shock and awe. 
You mean when I pay the minimum on my credit card, I'm not really getting ahead? No, you're not. They're charging you 18, 20, insane amounts of interest, giving you that minimum. It's going to take you years to pay it off, and you'll have paid three times, four times as much as what you borrowed. And they were going through that. And it was, it was enlightening to me to see how enlightening it was to them. And I realized, you know, oftentimes we just don't, we don't want to delay because no one has shown us the cost. When, when these people finally understood, wait a minute. If I put $1,000 on my credit card this month and they only charge me $40 next month, that's not a win? No, because they're going to charge you 40 for the next who knows how many years and you're going to end up paying them back three grand, four grand. And when you understand that, it's less appealing. But when, when we look at situations and God says something like, wait until you're married, we're like... What? What would I do that for? Why would I delay gratification? And I, I've shared this with people. There's some, first of all, if God said it, I encourage you to trust him. But let me just give you an example of one of the benefits. Besides staying disease-free and not having to worry about STDs and all of that stuff, let me give you an example. Every single, like, dating couple I have ever talked to who is considering getting married, when I ask them this question, always give me the same answer. I say, when you're married, will you be faithful to each other? Every time. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, of course. Why? Well, because that's the right thing to do. Okay. And then I say to them, I want you to fast forward in your imagination five years, ten years past your wedding. You get in an argument, and he or she has to go on a business trip. And they're on a business trip with some other people from their office who you happen to know are awfully flirtatious. And you know that you guys were in an argument. You know that that other person is going to give them an opportunity. How do you know that they're going to be faithful? If there's temptation, how do you know that they're not going to give in to that temptation? And... You know, well, they wouldn't. And I said, when you have followed God's plan and you guys can look back and say, you know what? Even if he's tempted, I know what it looks like when he's tempted and he will still choose to do things God's way even when there's tempted. Because when we were engaged, I remember what we wanted to do and I remember how badly we wanted to do it, but I remember that we waited because we respected each other and we believed that pleasing God was important. So even if he is tempted, I know what he looks like when he's tempted. But <clears throat> if you didn't, then it's, well, I don't think he would. But then again, when he knew it wasn't what he was supposed to do and we were tempted, well, we didn't care. Do you see how when we choose to do things God's way, we're building a foundation for our marriage that is so much stronger. So much stronger. And I'm not trying to 
to shame anybody who's made, uh, made a, a poor choice. But, I, but I want, what I want to do is demonstrate just one of the many values that come. I want to be just a little bit like that finance teacher who, who points out, hey, if you just pay the minimum, if you throw everything that your heart desires on a credit card and just think, if I don't, it's not due by the end of the month, I can forget about it, someday it comes due. Think about it. The immature son is hung up on his own rights, not his responsibilities. He looks and says, I have a right to all of that money when you die. So give it to me now. He skips the whole part about his responsibilities as a son. And in that society, his responsibilities were even more clearly marked in societal expectations. He was to, to stay and to work the family farm or business until his father died. But he was only focused on his rights and not his responsibilities. And when we do that, we always have this sense of, not, of unfairness. If you're looking at just your rights and you, you don't look at for responsibilities, it all, everything feels unfair. It's not fair. It's not fair. I don't want to see a raise of hands, but how many of you have heard that recently? Someone complaining about fairness. Fairness is good. But when we have our focus there, that is a sign of immaturity. He disliked authority or being told what to do. Even before he could spend his money, he took off. He wanted to get away. He had all the money. He, think about this for a second. He's at home. He's at this success, apparently successful farm. He has a stable life. He has all of that. His dad gave him the inheritance in advance. So he is like rolling. But it wasn't good enough to have all of that and still be in the shadow of his father's authority. He wanted to be away. So he took off. The Bible says he, he went and wasted the money in wild living. I love the word that it uses in Spanish. It says desfrenado, which means without breaks. He went and lived a life without breaks. Just whatever. He lived a life with no breaks. When we live that way, we can't value what we have. Think about this for a second. In just a matter of years, he managed to just waste away half of what his father had accumulated in a lifetime because of his perspective, his immaturity, and the, the, the view that he had trying to avoid uh, trying to avoid authority, hung up on his own rights. See, immaturity only puts value on what it doesn't have. Immaturity only puts value on what it doesn't have. How many of you remember the story of Esau when he sold his birthright for a bowl of porridge? Immaturity just looks at what I don't have. It, it, it sees, well... They have this. I don't have that. And immaturity doesn't look and say, but you have more. Immaturity is always looking at the grass on the other side of the fence. You know, the saying, the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. The grass is greener on top of the septic field. 
That's where the grass is greener. Where there's a lot of doo-doo. But it looks and it says, I'm willing to give up for what I don't have. Whatever I don't have, that's what I want. And so many people self-destruct. All we have to look do is look at the tabloids to see what does a life with all of these things lead to. They're still looking for what they don't have. Still trying to find what they don't have. He got all the way to dealing with pigs. Now, to us, pigs are dirty and smelly. My sister was raising pigs like a year ago, and man, like, it is one stinky endeavor. But to a Jewish person, pigs were unclean. They, they, they couldn't eat them. They weren't supposed to, to touch them. They were just supposed to avoid them entirely. This is just like the worst job he could have possibly gotten. And that's where that life without breaks, the, the no delayed gratification, the no, no perspective leads. The first sign of maturity that we see in the prodigal son is when he says, looks in the assessment and says, I am not worthy to be called a son. Before, he was too worthy to wait. Now he looks and recognizes, you know, I thought that I deserved everything up front. I thought I was so worthy, I didn't even deserve to wait for my father to die. Now I recognize I, I'm unworthy of the title. And then he goes home. Now, we know the story. Father welcomes him home and then uh, throws him a party. I'm going to jump to the, the, the brother. In verse 25, it says, Meanwhile, so the party has been announced. The father was thrilled to see his son back. His son, we know, was recognized he was unworthy, but his father says, it's not about your worthiness. It's about my grace, and I'm so glad to see you. So this is happening. He's welcoming his son back. The brother, the older son, was in a field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered to his, his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. Now, the, the older brother was at a higher level of maturity than his younger brother. It starts out, he was working in a field. So he was responsible. He was submitted to authority. Even though he didn't quite understand his father's perspective, at least he was submitted and obeying. There wasn't as much uh, breakless living, as we say. There was, he wasn't just in rampant sin. He was at home. It says, when he heard the music and dancing... He had a staunch response. He was very formal and serious. And I want to 
I want to take a minute to, 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 to discuss a, an accepted view. I remember, I remember my first job. I was 11 years old. And I got hired at a trucking company. They had like an eight-stall garage for these giant semi-trucks. And they, they hired me to come, and I was going to clean the trucks, and I was going to check the tires on the stuff and lube the axles. And I did some of the, um, like, changing air filters and a few different things. But, but this was my very first job. And I remember meeting with the owner. And him walking me around the garage and showing me some of the places. And I almost lost my job on the first day, and I'll tell you how. <clears throat> he was telling me, you know, this is what you're going to do, this is what you're going to do. And then he said, this is what I'm going to pay. And I, I think minimum wage was five-something at the time, and he offered me like eight, which was good. I'm 11. I'm getting over minimum wage. In my little head, I thought it was mature to be stoic. Like, I thought if I, like, jumped up and down and was, like, thankful and great, oh, yeah, awesome, woo, that I would look immature. So he's like, yeah, I'll pay you. I'm like, okay, cool. Like, I didn't, I didn't show appreciation for what he was offering. Now, he didn't fire me. I got the job. I got to do that. But I later heard from my dad, who knew the owner, he's like, he was really confused why you weren't appreciative. And I was. I was so excited. I just thought the mature thing to do was to be serious. This is what the Bible says. The joy of the Lord is our strength. A sour face is not a sign of maturity. Refusal to smile is not a sign of maturity. There's an interesting story in the Old Testament. David was worshiping the Lord and he, he got excited and he was dancing around. And his wife got upset with him. And he responded in 2 Samuel 6.21. He said, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house and appointed me ruler over the Lord's people. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. Jesus told us to come like a child, with a child's heart. Tell you what, when I'm driving around with my kids in the back of the car, you know what's constantly happening back there? <laughs> what is going on back there? I'm like looking back there, what is going on? Especially when one of my boys has his friend in the car, there's just like constant like, joy and giggling and and I like I'm like what I, I I constantly turn around like what happened now did something major happen back there no no they're just back there enjoying life the word to dance in Hebrew like David said he would dance before the Lord it carries the meaning of to play God delights in us as children he likes to see us play before him now is it possible to, to be over the top? Is it possible to be ingenuous? Absolutely. Absolutely. In Ecclesiastes, there's a verse that talks about sadness being better than laughter. But then that verse goes on to say, because the sadness of the face, for by the sadness of the face, the heart is made glad. 
there are times when we do need to go through an emotion and not ignore it. There's another verse that talks about the genuineness. We recognize that sometimes people pretend happiness a little more often than they pretend sadness. But don't think that you have to avoid the joy that being serious is a sign of maturity. Honestly, the ability to enjoy what God has given you is a part of what being mature is. The brother feels marginalized. He asks the caretaker what going, going on. He feels like no one asked him. He feels unincluded. He's worried about his position. At that level, his focus is on his position. He gets mad about the details. He's very easily offended. We, we are not to be easily offended. Let me just encourage you. One of our responsibilities, the Bible talks about being like a, like a righteous is like a strong tower. They're difficult to offend. But the brother was easy to offend because he was looking for ways that this might be about him and how he could be offended. His brother just got back. He was dead. Now he's alive. But he doesn't care because you're doing something for him that hasn't been done for me, and that means I'm lower on the totem pole. He's all about position. In that place, we're not concerned with the lost. But as we'll see in the end, the father who has maturity is concerned with those who are lost. He does, the, the, the middle brother or the older brother, he is concerned about position and merit. He wants to look good before his dad. He doesn't have a heart for those who are in need. Notice he has, <clears throat> how about the, the, the statement he makes? I have never disobeyed you. How many of you think that's accurate? I mean, if you have kids, you know that's not accurate. There is no way. I don't care if he is, like, amazing. You know he has disobeyed them. But he has a false sense of justice. His perspective on his life is that he, he's not done anything wrong ever. He says to his dad, I have never disobeyed you. That's not true. I just want to encourage you. Uh, one thing, a, a step in growing in maturity is recognizing your own bias. Recognizing that your perspective is precisely your perspective. From his perspective, he has never done anything wrong. And his brother has done everything wrong. I never did anything wrong. He has done everything wrong. I've never disobeyed you. We need to recognize our, our perspective needs to be viewed with skepticism. When you look at a situation and you feel like I've done nothing and they have done everything. Tell you what, when, when couples come to me and tell me about, you know, Whoever I hear first always sounds like the only one doing, you know, the other person's the always one. Have you ever done that? Someone comes to you, they tell you a story like, oh my goodness. 
And then you hear the other part of the story, and you're like, wait a minute. How can both of those things even be simultaneously true, right? Why? Because each person is viewing the situation only through their perspective. And if we trust that we don't have any bias towards ourselves, we're setting ourselves up. That's the big, the, the older brother. He says, I have never disobeyed. Yes, you have. Come on. Yes, you have. Everyone sounds like a victim when you hear only their side of the story. When we think that our faithfulness makes us more valuable. Listen to me. This is, this is key. You are not more valuable to God than someone who has made more mistakes than you. Now, you might be more functional, but you're not more valuable. Because the value that you have. Most of you have probably heard the example of, of you know, hey, if I, take, if I take a dollar bill and I crumple it, do you still want it? Well, of course. If, if It doesn't matter. I can dip it in water. I can mess it up. We don't, we don't care what I've done to it because the value in the dollar isn't in the condition of the dollar. It's intrinsically put there by its maker. You see, we have the same value. That father looked at both of his sons and saw the same value. Not the same behavior. You can bet he was disappointed in what his son had done. But he still loved him just the same. He still had that same value. When we look in the, the story of the the parable of the vineyard. Remember when Jesus told this story? He said a man went out and, and he hired some people to work in his vineyard. And he started in the morning. And he said, I'll give you a denarii, which was a day's wage. Then he goes back a couple hours later and thinks they could use some help. So he finds someone else. And it's not 8 in the morning, now it's 10 in the morning. He says, hey, would you guys come and help in the vineyard? Sure, what does it pay? A day's wage. So he goes, and he keeps hiring more and more people and sending more and more help. And you've got to know how those people probably felt. They're like, oh, great, look at it, more help, awesome. And they're working together all day long. Everybody's happy. And then at the end of the day, the owner comes, has everyone line up for their pay, and gives everybody what they agreed to work for, which was a day's wage, a denarii. And then all of a sudden, the people who were hired earlier in the morning get all bent out of shape. They're like, wait a minute, how come we who worked through the entire day get a day's wage, and even the person who was hired last and only worked a short period of time is getting the same thing? And the owner says, hey, isn't it my money? Don't I get to choose? Why, did, why were you okay with it? until you compared it to somebody else. And you know, this example was meant to be about our lives. And someone who says, you know what? Since I was a kid, I follow the Lord. I've lived right. I've done what I was supposed to, to do to please him. And, and I've, I've, I've done my best to be a good Christian and, and treat others with respect and, and all of this stuff. And then, you know, there's this guy. Broke all the rules, did everything wrong, ended up in jail robbed people, 
hurt people, and then he asks for forgiveness and he gets to heaven too? And we both get paid the same? And God says, you've got your focus wrong. The focus isn't supposed to be on our merit, but on his grace. He says, I can be as gracious as I want to be. What we deserve, honestly, whether we've sinned a lot or a little, is spiritual death, separation from God, because sin separates us from him. The wages of sin is death. What is death? Death is a separation. Spiritual death, separation from God, physical death, separation of your spirit from your body. The wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. And God says, don't be focused on your perceived value because he values us all the same. And he warns us with that parable. He says, I'm not weighing your value based on what you've done. When we get to heaven, there's going to be people who didn't make as many right choices as we did, who are right there worshiping with us for eternity. It's not about my merit. It's about his grace. Let's get to the father. So we jump back in the story to when the father, what it says about the father in verse 20, it says, so he got up and he went to his father. This is the prodigal son. It says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to the father, father, I have sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, Bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is the heart of a father. He is generous, compassionate. The father is truly the mature person whose focus isn't on himself. He's looking out. He has a, a, a full perspective of what's going on. The son who came to him, it's not fair. You realize? He didn't think it was fair, but everything belonged to him. Everything. Remember, our perspective is typically like very twisted. We're focused on what we don't have. I don't have the fatted calf. No, you don't have the fatted calf. You have all the cows. Right, but, but in his immaturity, he only notices the one he doesn't have. But the father sees his son come back. He welcomes him. Notice that the father shows his emotion. Again, maturity isn't a lack of emotion. He's expressive. He's compassionate. He makes no exception. Uh, because of, of persons. The Bible says that God does not have favorites. But you know what else? He didn't just celebrate the son. He went out and found the brother that was out there and addressed him as well. Fatherhood is under attack in our society. It is so under attack. It is hard to find in current television movies, cartoons, a decent father figure. It's just hard to find. When I think of an example, I think of the movie Cheaper by the Dozen. Have you ever seen that? Cheaper by the Dozen, starring Steve Martin. 
if you know nothing about that storyline, it's just, hey, this is about a family that had a bunch of kids and how disastrous having a bunch of kids would apparently be. And there's all these scenes of the house being, you know, destroyed, paint splattered everywhere, pets running all over the place, pranks being played. It is a chaotic mess. But Cheaper by the Dozen is actually a, a remake of a movie from 1950. And in 1950, it was a book. It was a movie made in, a book made into a movie. And the father and the mother were real people. It was Frank and Lillian Gilbreth. They were efficiency experts. She was the first uh, female engineer to get a PhD. Very, I mean, honestly, the story would even fit if they wanted to put it in today with celebrating women's achievements and all that. It was, it was that is their family. The story was written, and if you look, watch the 1950s version, their family wasn't a disaster. The father and mother, who were both highly accomplished, ran their family quite effectively. And it was about how much synergy there was in family. But when we remade it in today's society, they cast Steve Martin. Why do you cast Steve Martin in any role ever? To make it goofy. They find a comedian, they roll, and they just disrespect the dad, all over the place. And I look at that and I think about the way that our society looks. I think they took what was an amazing story and they replaced it with current values. We need to be intentional about celebrating true father's heart. That maturity that it takes to do that. Matthew 23, 10, verse 12 says, Nor are you called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. True maturity thinks of others. True greatness looks to others. My wife often reminds me, that one of the greatest goals I should have in raising my children is raising them to have empathy. That they would look and see others and see the world through a perspective that isn't just my own. That isn't just focused on what I don't have. But looks to say, okay, what do you need and how can I help you achieve it? John Maxwell is, is considered a, a, an authority on leadership. He's written so many books. And famously, when he meets someone, he is famous for, for asking, how can I help you? And oftentimes that's introducing them to somebody who, who does something that they need or has something that they're looking for or, or, or helping to network and connect and do different things. But what, as a leader, his greatness comes from his consistent focus on being a blessing to others. The Bible tells us that the greatest amongst us will be the servant. Our maturity, our greatness comes and grows as our focus leaves inward and then begins to get farther and farther from ourselves. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you. I thank you that you 
love each and every one of us the same. That there is nothing anyone has done in the sound of my voice that has disqualified them from fully being the target of your love. Lord, we just pray that you would help us to grow. To grow in our understanding of your calling and perspective on our life. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see our situation as you see it. To see the situations of those around us as you see it. Lord, I ask that you would help us not to focus on what we don't have, but focus on what we do have and how we can use that to be your hands and feet. I thank you for it in Jesus' name. The big, the most common lesson from the story of the prodigal is God's heart for the lost. If you heard that story and you see yourself in it, you say, I recognize that God has done so much for me and I turned my back and I went my own way. But I'd like to come back. I'd like to see God welcome me the way that this father welcomed his son. The Bible says, all you have to do is ask. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, you will be saved. That's it. If you want to come back home to God, if that's you today, I want to ask everyone to just close your eyes so no one's embarrassed, including you who are watching us online. If that's you and you want to come back to the Lord, I want to ask you to raise your hand and we'll come back together. I see one hand and there may be others watching online. Let's, let's repeat this prayer together. Can you do this? Say, Dear Lord, thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead victorious over death. I will make you the Lord of my life. I accept your forgiveness. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. 